Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students. Radio show. Radio show, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at the University of Western Ontario. I'll be your host for today, Tyson Davis, and I'm joined by Eric Green. And today we're here with Dominic, and I'm sorry, I forgot the pronunciation of your last name. Svela. 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 And you're in public history, right? I am indeed. Okay, so why don't you tell us a little bit about the program and what you do? Yeah, so the program uh, this year is 14 people. It's usually, you know, around a dozen people, and it's mainly a very interactive program based in uh, what we like to call, obviously, public history, which is a stream of history that mainly deals with, obviously making history more accessible to the public. So very often you'll see us in positions such as curators, collection managers, archivists, um, historical land assessment, uh, that type of thing, even government jobs very often. Um, so this year, for example, a lot of the projects we do are very um, based in uh, a lot of hands-on experience. So, for example, in the beginning of the year we did a built heritage um, project, so every, every one of us was assigned a house in London, and we had to do a full-blown research segment on it, Basically, who lived there, what were their profession, what was their profession, um, who built the house, does it have any architectural um, significance to it, you know, if it's a style, a mixed style, does it really uh, suit well to the neighborhood, that type of thing. And then we got to present in front of a city, um, kind of a city council on the matter, and uh, basically our assessments were taken into account when they make the final judgment whether the house should be um, turned into a heritage home or not. Awesome. So what specifically are you guys researching this term for your, for your, uh, your dissertation? Sorry. Yeah, so this, uh, this year, um, all 14 of us, it's a very collaborative project. Um, we took five, about 500 letters from uh, assessment, uh, that type of thing, even government jobs very often. Um, so this year, for example, a lot of the projects we do are very um, based in uh, a lot of hands-on experience. So, for example, in the beginning of the year, we did a built heritage um, project. So every every one of us was assigned a house in London, and we had to do a full-blown research segment on it. Basically, who lived there? What were their profession? What was their profession? Um, who built the house? Does it have any architectural um, significance to it? You know, if it's a style, a mixed style, does it really... Uh, suit well to the neighborhood, that type of thing. And then we got to present in front of a city, um, kind of a city council on the matter. And uh, basically our assessments were taken into account when they make the final judgment whether the house should be um, turned into a heritage home or not. Awesome. So what specifically are you guys researching this term for your, for your, uh, your dissertation? Sorry. Yeah. So this, uh, this year, um, all 14 of us, it's a very collaborative project. Um, we took five, about 500 letters from a uh, a pretty prominent family in London called the Leonard family. Um, these 500 letters come from between 1914 and 1918, so obviously during World War I. Um, two of the sons of this uh, family, the Leonard family, fought uh, in France, and obviously there's a lot of correspondence between them and their families back home. So we took these 500 letters, approximately a couple thousand uh, pages worth of uh, text, transcribed them all. Uh, took us a lot of manpower, you know, just to kind of get through it. A lot of them were very interesting, but some of them are quite repetitive. Um, and at the end of it, we are basically publishing a book. So the book is uh, called This Hour of Trial and Sorrow. And so out of the thousands of pages we have of transcribed text, we're basically selecting the best and most evocative 200 or so pages, publishing it in a book, along with four essays that we've prepared, um, an essay on the Leonard family itself, so who are they and why are they important, um, an essay on London during the war, so what it looked like here during the war and what London uh, citizens were doing to obviously help the war effort, 
uh, essay on uh, the war overseas. So why did the war start in the first place? And how did the Leonard uh, brothers find themselves there? As well as, well as uh, an, a kind of a segment on uh, letter correspondence. So how letters were written, especially in terms of uh, how the letters were sent back and with a lot of censorship. So obviously places and names are very often cut out by the censors themselves. And a final essay on returning home. So what London looked like with all the soldiers returning home. That's awesome. So, um, not to try to spoil anything from the book itself, but what prominence does this family hold in London? The family um, used to own a giant foundry here in London. Um, So, they made basically uh, kind of engines, steamers, and boilers, and that type of thing. Um, London wasn't actually their only location. They had a bunch of locations across Canada, um, including St. John's. Um, I think they had one in Calgary and way in BC as well. I think in Montreal as well. Um, very prominent, wealthy family. Their lineage kind of spans all the way back to the 17th century England. Um, I think they even have, I think, royal ties. Um, as during the war, for example, the family um, made shells. So they made uh, shells, obviously, for the war effort. Um, got quite a bit of wealth from that but other than that um yeah it's just mainly um big business in london so okay well i'm just gonna <clears throat> take it back a little bit here dominic and, and i know you did your ba uh and your major was in history and your minor was in classical studies yep. so i'm just curious where throughout the course of those years doing your bachelor's did you decide you wanted to go into public history as opposed to more you know standard history yeah it was uh, it was actually quite uh a while before that um when i was in high school um, you know, my my BA was just a way to get into the public, uh, you know, the master's public history program because there really isn't a BA in public history anywhere. Um, so my interest kind of, um, the peak of it was uh, when I was about grade 11. Um, I had went to the ROM as a part of a school trip, and we got to go behind the scenes and see a lot of the, you know, the collections and stuff like that. And there was a special that time on in the samurais of feudal Japan, and we got to, you know, handle a lot of the swords and the armor and stuff like that. I think that really piqued my interest, and, you know, I thought, well, you know, I think I could do this as a profession. I think this would really interest me as dealing with, you know, the physical physical um, portions of history. Yeah. Yeah, it does seem like it's definitely a lot more hands-on than just the uh, the theoretical oh, yeah, absolutely. The writing of papers and stuff absolutely. like that. So uh, just out of curiosity, what's your favorite part of history what's your favorite area of study oh my favorite my favorite era is probably uh the classical era so you know romans greeks that type of thing um it's part of the reason why i when i started at uh western i was a double major in uh, poli sci and history and about my second year i decided poli sci really wasn't for me so i switched to a minor in classics i didn't have enough time to do a major in classics and part of doing a major in classics also entails uh taking latin and ancient greek which i really didn't have time for especially for another two years just wouldn't be time for that, so I just decided for a minor instead. Yeah, man, you shout out to my uh, to my alma mater because uh, my undergrad actually does do a BA in public history. Oh, really? <coughs> over at Bishops in Quebec. Oh, okay, cool. But yeah, it's out there, man. Yeah, public well, history's becoming a thing. Oh, well, good, I, uh, good. Go ahead, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, to bring it back to the book. Yeah, what absolutely. publisher picked you guys up? Just out of curiosity. Just through Western. Um, you know, the, uh, at the beginning of the year, our. Uh, awesome supervisor uh, michelle hamilton she always basically picks what project we're going to be doing so last year for example they were closely <coughs> with fanshawe pioneer village um and they put together a display for a rural doctor from kind of the turn of the century and so you know fanshawe pioneer village they all have all the kind of the you know historic houses one of the houses was the house for dr jones and so they put up a display there and so this year it just happened that uh the professor chose to look at these letters and you know the school funded it and that's where we are 
Awesome. So are all 12 of you involved in the essays? Yeah, there's 14 of us actually this year. And yeah, all 14 of us are involved in it. Um, We're divided into four groups. Um, You know, some, obviously, some groups have three, some groups have four. Um, And that's how we actually wrote the essays. You know, there's four essays. We we each wrote an essay on the different topics. But as a whole, it's obviously a collaborative project. We each put a lot of work into it. And, you know, and there's positives and negatives to working with a giant group. Um, You know, positives, obviously, you get to... You know, a lot of division of labor. You don't have to do everything yourself. Um, you know, there's a lot of opinions, but that can also be a negative, you know. Sometimes, you know, there's 14 people, 14 voices. But uh, I think we did a really good job kind of getting through all of that and making this a project that we're all proud of. Awesome. And which essay specifically did you work on? Yeah, I worked on the War Overseas um, section or the War Overseas uh, essay. And more specifically, I looked at the tactics of uh basically the Western Front, so how that changed from 1914 to 1918 and how obviously the, the war in the trenches evolved and why that ended towards the middle of uh, 1918 and basically to the end of the war. Uh, I'm curious, Dominic, the letters in question in the in the book, did, were they being sent between the, the brothers overseas or were they being sent back and forth? Most of them were sent back and forth. So we have a lot of letters from uh, Frank Leonard, their dad, um, obviously to the sons, mainly dealing with actually the business, because the business was a joint venture. Their sons were very much part of it, even during the war. Um, So that never stopped. Uh, Most of his letters, actually, I transcribed uh, a lot of uh, the letters that Frank um, sent to his sons. And a lot of this basic business letters, you know, should we do this expansion? Should we make these these many shells or, you know, and asking their his opinion or their opinions? Um, but we also do have, I think there are a few letters between the brothers, but they very often fought close enough to each other that they could just travel to visit each other and discuss the letters. So a lot of letters will say something like, went to go see Woodman, we discussed your proposition of such and such date, here's our answer type of idea. Um, but yeah, and there's a few letters from the sister, uh, Alice, but most of them are from Woodman and Ibbotson themselves. Okay, so that actually provides you know a, a very close-up insight into the Canadian soldiers' experience overseas. So what were you guys able to extrapolate from these letters about how the experience of the war was for these two brothers? Yeah, um, the brothers are a little bit different than most soldiers. They were both officers, and so they obviously had a few privileges that other soldiers didn't. Um, out of the two of them, Ibbotson had a little bit of an easier, let's say, wartime experience. Um, you know, he had a few servants. They'd draw him hot baths. He very often had pajamas and got to sleep in a pretty comfy room. Obviously, a sh- you know, a stark um, contrast to what we usually think of as living in the trenches. Um, I think Woodman had it a little bit worse. He was an art- art- artillery officer um, and sometimes spent some time in the trenches, and that came out through the letters. Um, but very often, you know, the, the stuff we read, especially from Ibbotson, is, you know, I read, you know, this book, and I don't think I enjoyed it that much, or I enjoyed it, or, you know, my servant drew me this hot bath, and it felt fantastic, that type of thing. So it's, it's quite different um, than what you would usually think. So was uh, was their status in the military based on their like prominence back home, or was it uh, an actual merit system? They went. They both went to RMC, so Royal Military College, um, in Kingston. So they were both basically trained as officers, and it was mainly a rank thing. Um, you know, you could be from at the time lower classes, and if you obviously went through the military and got to a higher rank, you'd still enjoy these privileges. But World War One did a big. Um, changed a lot of the perceptions that we have between obviously the nobility always being the officers especially in england um you know where a lot of the upper classes were usually the officers but world war one changed a lot of that where everyone fought in the trenches more or less although officers did find themselves usually in a a little bit more comfortable position um but you know a lot of uh, a lot of world war one their accounts you read is by the time you know the soldiers 
get to the enemy trench, their officers had been killed off because they're the ones that were targeted first. So obviously you have to promote someone, so you promote the lower-level soldiers. Interesting. So uh, between the two brothers, the one who lived kind of lavishly and the one who was an, an artillery officer, which of the two didn't make it back? Actually, the artillery officer, Woodman Leonard, didn't make it back. He died at Vimy Ridge. Vimy Ridge. He was uh, shot, and uh, at first they thought he, would, he was going to make it, but he took a turn for the worst and ended up dying quite soon after. Interesting. And just to tie this back to a previous episode of Gradcast that we did, um, did you guys look into at all um, the Christmas uh, kind of laying down the arms during World War I? Was that at all mentioned? Not really. Um, it didn't come out in the letters whatsoever, at least the letters we have. Um, we're really focusing on the brothers and the tie to local history, especially in London, um, and what the letters had to tell us. We we didn't find anything um, of mention that they mentioned, at least. So not we didn't look into that specifically, no. All right, well, I just want to bring it back to, to you a little bit more as opposed to the research. I, I know that you volunteered at the uh, the Royal Canadian Regiment Museum. Yep. And uh, you were actually involved in the grand, <clears throat> pardon me, the grand reopening back in yeah, 2013. Absolutely. And I'm just curious, how was it, what was that all about? Um, so the museum underwent, obviously, a big uh, big stage of renovation and expansion. So they about doubled in size um, between, I think, about 2011 or 2010 to 2013. Um, big renovations were happening at that time. A lot of money came in, and they got to... Um, change a lot of the stuff, um, especially in, I don't know if you're um, familiar with the building itself, Wolseley Barracks, the kind of big U-shaped military building. Um, so one of the whole sides now is actually dedicated to the museum. And uh, yeah, so, you know, instead of instead of having it kind of squished into a small space, they decided to obviously expand it and um, help out with the interpretive process. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. You know, you get to meet a lot of interesting people, especially in the kind of you know the curatorial and museum field as well as the military field you know a lot of uh, officials still are at the barracks and one of the battalions is still present so um especially for the grand reopening you know there are um museum officials as well as military officials from more or less actually across uh ontario coming to see the coming to see the finished project do you by any chance work at the desk i do did I by any chance meet you in the summer of 2013? When I oh, you very likely did. Yeah, I've been there for a few years. I'm still there now, and actually I'll be doing my internship there starting in May for a few months. Because I remember wandering in in the summertime, like no one was there. Yeah. And I remember talking to the guy at the front, and it might have been you. Yeah, very likely was. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I'm at the front desk most huh. of the time, especially during the school year, because I have a lot less time to actually do other stuff. But I give tours very often, um, you know, once in a while when people need help, I'll be at the cash, but... Um, it's usually during the summer that I get to do a lot more of the more curatorial stuff. The creator there, Georgiana Stanchi, was amazing at letting me kind of try out all kinds of different things and see where my interests lie. And I think I'm leaning more towards the kind of collections management aspect. Like I was saying earlier, I like dealing with physical things. So so that's your plan then when you finish uh, your MA is to go into curation? Yeah, so when the MA finishes, we have the third term, which is during the summer. It's a, it's a summer internship, so each each one of us finds a, a different position wherever. I'm saying you know, a lot of people stay in Ontario, but that's not exclusive. You know, One of my friends is going out to BC, for example, so there's quite a range of where you can go. Um, a couple of people are looking into going to Texas, too. Um, and after that, yeah, I think I think I'll stick to kind of trying to get something in that field. Um, at this time, it you know it seems that there's not a lot of jobs out there, so it'll be a little bit difficult. But you know, hopefully, I can find something here in London that'll that'll satisfy my need for physical things. So, um, just for everybody out there, because I know m- myself, for example, when any time I've gone to a museum, I've never once stopped and thought to myself what exactly the museum curator does. So I was just wondering if you might be able to explain it to us for myself and everybody out there that doesn't really know. 
Yeah, it's it's quite a quite a range of a job. Um, it really depends on the museum itself. I mean, sometimes a curator is a very uh, administrative person, really doesn't have that much to do with the day-to-day operations. So very much a CEO almost. But in some museums, this you know the curator does everything really. You know, for example, that's more or less the case at the RCR. With you know an exception now, you know we kind of took on more people now. But at a certain time, you know, the curator there was doing everything from choosing what uh, object we're going to be put on display, what kind of display cases, even, you know, down to the labels that we're going to use and everything in between. Um, a lot of the times, uh, they're also the public face to the museum. Um, you know, the curator as being kind of the, the person in charge, obviously responsible for the entire operation. Um, a lot of times they lead the educational programs. Um, and again, it, it really depends on the museum. So some, you know, for example, at a place like the ROM, huge institution, you know, the the curator is not going to have time to do that type of thing. But at smaller institutions, there's definitely more leeway to be more, uh, to be more um, part of the community and deal with the community and the visitors um, directly. So, All right. Well, another thing I'm a little bit curious about, this is a strand of history <clears throat> that people don't often consider, like yep. I was just saying. And I, just, I, I, I want you to tell me why it's important to you that this stuff exists that museums display these artifacts and that people can actually have physical access to the past yeah it's actually you know it's a question that we grapple with even nowadays i mean you know how much how much importance do we put in these physical objects and are they really necessary um at the same time i i really think they they are um you know, we, we recently had a guest lecturer come in for our museology class who was saying that, you know, a lot of times, especially at Fanshawe Pioneer Village, for example, when you go, when a family goes out with their grandmother, for example, and she notices something in the museum and sees, oh, I used to use this. I used to be able to know how to use it. And, you know, they explain it to their kids and so on. And it becomes a family matter. You know, you can learn about your history, your family, um, not just through reading a label or reading something off of a screen or something like that or watching a show, but, you know, it's your family member here saying... I used to use this and remembers it and passes on the knowledge to their um, to their children or their grandchildren and so on and so forth. So I think it's important because it, it ties us back to our past in more ways than one. I think well, oftentimes we need that. It's not it's not something you know. A lot of times people you know say you know there's no future without the past and stuff like that. And you know although that's very simplistic, I think it's true in many ways that you know I don't think I don't think looking forward is the only way. I think we have to look back oftentimes to be able to be able to know what to do in the future so so aside from the book that you guys are working on right now <clears throat> what other kind of research is going on in the department yeah so um for like i said the first term we did the built heritage project so mm-hmm. assessing the houses um second term right now it's mainly we've been dealing with the book but uh we have a project later which we kind of call the twitter project so what we do is we look at uh we're each assigned about a month um, during World War One, so I would think I was assigned May of 1915, and we look at uh, the archival records from the London Free Press, and we look at their headlines, and we tweet that on the day, a hundred years later. So in 2015, now we're going to be tweeting stuff that happened a hundred years ago, but it was happening in London during the war. So it's a way again to connect to the community, local history. You know what was going on in London, obviously a very different time from nowadays. Uh, for museology class, for example, we're putting on a display of uh, rural medicine um, at the turn of the century. So that's going to be coming up in about two weeks. It's going to be up in Lawson Hall, um, just across from the main uh, offices. So there's kind of a display case there. So again, it's a lot of hands-on stuff. So um, UWO has a UWO History Department has a, quite an extensive collection of kind of the turn of the century medical artifacts, and we're, they're working closely with again Fanshawe Pioneer Village to kind of get the stuff we need. So we're focusing a lot on kind of the traveling doctor, the rural doctor who had to go places and the limited amount of tools he had to do his job. 
So, you know, hopefully that'll come through through our display and the objects we chose. So, so a lot of the things that you're talking about are really cool. Um, I love the project because, like, as everyone who listens to the show who knows me knows that I do a history as well. I go and sit in the, the people who read long books and write long papers yeah, category yeah. of historians. And um, it's interesting because, like, yeah, it's a very friendly attitude, but it's also very weirdly separate because you, you guys kind of are such a tight-knit community of of students can you talk a little bit about um i think public history students must collaborate and work together more than most other humanities uh master students i'd be really curious to hear more about the kind of um culture that that uh has sprung up in your office there yeah it's i mean you know unlike regular kind of the regular stream historians a lot of our projects if not most of them are collaborative you know you do them in groups you do them in even pairs it doesn't matter but there is a group aspect and while you know the regular stream you know you do your research you write your dissertation and you do it more or less individually and um yeah it's interesting because like you know you you meet as complete strangers you know more or less complete strangers i actually knew a few of the people in the program before from you know there's a few western students in there that i knew from my ba but you know you go there more or less complete strangers and you know you're expected to work with these other 13 people on these giant projects that are going to be you know published and you're going to be presenting to all kinds of different uh, institutions and stuff like that so you know you you learn to you learn to be very uh very accepting of other people's especially opinions you know there's no room for being judgmental or anything like that and i think that's we've done quite a good job um, of kind of taking 14 opinions and making making it something that we can all work with um and i think that's why you know it seems to you know the other history students that we're such a close-knit group because we have to be there's no other way to get through this program without it so yeah and uh, another thing i'm really curious about uh, i know that um the program has very contrary, I think like I would say that you, Eric, you have like the closest thing going on here, is that there's really a high emphasis on the power of being a good history communicator. And I know that your program requires you guys to start a Twitter and a blog right yep, in September yep. when you start. Yep. Uh, so can you go into like kind of what you're expected to do with that and like what you've learned about being a communicator of history? Yeah, so yeah, like like you said, um, when you start out, you know, you open up a bunch of a bunch of accounts that you didn't necessarily have. So I opened up a Twitter and a blog right away. I didn't have Twitter before I started this program. Um, what you learn is to there's a difference between writing history for academics and writing history for the public. Um, there's a big difference in how you communicate, especially in terms of language and style. Um, you know, usually the simpler you can make something, the better. But that's not usually the case. But it's often about to be effective, obviously your message has, message has to go through. So very often what I ended up doing is if I wrote something that was meant for the public, I'd have it read by not my, you know, people in the public history program, but by someone else to make sure that they understand and, and um, they know what's going on. Um, the blog, for example, was uh, a way, especially in some of our more, uh, some of our courses that don't have that much writing to basically be an update as well as kind of a a way to get your get yourself out there. So, for example, one of the stories that our supervisor loves to say is loves to tell is uh, one of the students from a couple of years ago actually got hired because of the blog. So, the work she was I can't remember if it was he or she, but the work that person was doing um, and blogging about actually got her hired or the person hired in the United States. So, you know, there is an avenue there, and a lot of times it's just about really getting your name out there, especially with Twitter. I mean, Twitter's really blown up, and you know, more or less everyone has it, and uh, you know. There's a good way to use Twitter even for 
academic purposes, I think. So a lot of museums, especially nowadays, you know, whether it's social functions or kind of little tidbits. So, for example, the RCR is doing stuff like, you know, like museum secrets. So once in a while, they'll tweet something that, you know, maybe you don't know or something behind the scenes. And I think that's important. Like people love that kind of stuff, like the behind the scenes look or the look you don't get usually. So yeah, speaking of which, there's one other really cool thing about the program that I also want to get uh, to ask you about what happens back there is um, you guys build stuff. Yeah, yeah, we build stuff. And, um, like, you guys build really cool stuff, and you guys, like, you guys are really hands-on on those things. Can you tell me more about, like, what, what's going on in the building? Yeah, so uh, a big part of public history, especially nowadays, is the digital aspect. Um, it's getting more and more, obviously, evident that uh, the public history field has to accept, obviously, these trends, you know, whether it's making... Uh, more interactive exhibits. So that's actually one of the classes is interactive exhibit design with Bill Turkel, which is a fantastic course if anyone ever has a chance to take it. Um, what you do is at the beginning of the year, there's a few lectures on basically interactive exhibits and how to build stuff in certain programs and certain uh, using certain tools. And then you're expected to basically just go on your own and make yourself a project. So a lot of people are doing, uh, for example, one of the projects I can think of is um, Tamar Cache is doing a project where you kind of line yourself up with the computer and it takes a photo of your head and then it lines you up with like pictures from the past and then that'll print out the picture and then on the back of it there'll be a little um, historical kind of information about you know the dress that you're wearing or the you know the suit that you're wearing and what it would have been or what the uh, what the norms would have been at the time Um, a lot of people are doing a lot more hands-on stuff so for example in the years past people have done you know um, for example like there's been like a car and they had this kind of inform- information on they would drive around and be able to tell you all this kind of different information. So it's just, yeah, it's, it's you got to think outside the box, especially with these kinds of exhibits. Um, you know, and it's, I, the thing I like about the course is that, you know, it's, it's meant for you to try different things. And the professor says at the beginning of the year is, you know, don't worry, don't matter if it fails, just try your best, do your best. And at the end of the day, you know, if you at least know why it failed and you tried something that you really wanted and kind of shot for the stars, then that'll be just fine. So classic Turkel. Yeah, classic Turkel. All right, I don't mean to keep tossing back to previous questions, oh, but like, like Tristan was just saying, um, my program also requires me to start a blog and like Twitter yep, at the beginning yep. of the year when we got here. I'm, I'm just really curious because when I'm using Twitter, I'm tweeting about you know covering a story or that I'm doing this right now or something like that. You know what I mean? What kind of stuff are you guys blogging about and tweeting about? Um, a lot of our blogs are especially with our classes. So. Um, you know, you're tweeting about the projects you're doing or what you're thinking about doing. You know, maybe you get someone to share their opinion with you. Maybe, you know, they think it's a good idea, it's a bad idea, that type of thing. So oftentimes, especially a couple months ago, I was tweeting about the type of interactive exhibit I wanted to make. And, you know, by the time I, I look back on all the blogs I did, and I ended up with a completely different idea than what I started out with. Um, tweeting, I've Personally, I haven't gotten too much into that. I've been, you know, you try, and especially with something new, and you know, you don't quite know how to handle it. But a lot of it is, uh, a lot of what I try and do is mainly just stuff that's going on in local history. Um, sometimes I'll tweet, you know, world events. And for example, one of the latest things that I think I put up there is, you know, there was a unfortunate shooting at the museum, and I think it was Tunisia. So you know, I, I think a couple dozen people lost their lives. So you know, that's obviously something that we've. Uh, is becoming more and more and more prevalent. You know, in the Middle East, there was a story recently where, you know, ISIS had destroyed a whole bunch of statues from how long ago. So, you know, and that's very relevant. This is history that doesn't belong to one country, but everyone, and, you know, it's sad to see it destroyed like that, so. 
Okay, and, and another thing that I, I was going to ask you about earlier, but I didn't want to interrupt you on a roll. Uh, you're originally from Slovakia. Yes. And so I'm just curious how long... Like, you've been in Canada for eight years, right? About eight years, So yes. you did high school here as well. I did from grade 10, yes. Okay, so why the move? What made the, uh, the decision? I had actually lived in the United States prior to that for a few years. My dad's job kind of brought us around the world, especially in North America. So I had lived in Florida when I was about four about maybe 12 and we moved back home every summer to Slovakia and then uh, we moved to Toronto for a year and then that was it my dad had retired and we moved back home and it came time to kind of choose to where to go to school and I had thought that you know my English skills were pretty good I can maybe come back here and try it out especially with universities and stuff like that so I came back in grade 10 just so because I wanted the high school degree it's a lot easier getting accepted obviously if you have the high school degree from Canada to go to a Canadian university and that's pretty much where I've been I, you know I after grade 10, I didn't think I'd stay. I had a pretty tough grade 10, but ended up making it, and here I am now nine years later. So, Inspiring. Yeah, inspiring. Still going thank you, strong. Dominic, so much for coming oh, on the show tonight. Thank you guys so much. run out of time, but it's oh, been perfect. a great interview. Yeah. And uh, you guys out there are listening to GradCast on 94.9 CHRW. Check out our podcast that we do on our off weeks at gradcastradio.ca. And, um, of course, go talk to Romina and Gradcast Radio on Twitter. Basically, Gradcast Radio leads us to all of the things that we do. Uh, <laughs> you guys have an amazing week, and we will see you guys next time. Adios. That's all for this week. If you want to send us some feedback, or if you want to come on the show yourself, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Be sure to hook us up on social media. On Twitter, we're at Gradcast Radio. And look up Gradcast Radio also on Facebook. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, the podcast is located at gradcast.podbean.com and it's on iTunes. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a review? It really helps us out. We'll see you guys next week.